kau ki te tai e kau ki te tai e kau rā e tāne. Wahi atu rā te ngaru huka huka o mare reiau. Aupiki atu te aurere kura o tautaurangi. Tapa tapa ruru ana te kakau o te hoi. E au heke ana e taratutu ana i te huka o tangaroa. Ka titiru au ki te pai o te uta, ki te pai o waho. Piki tūrangi ana te kakau o te hoi. Kumia te uru o taku waka. Ki runga ki te kiri waiwai o papatu ānuku e takoto mai nei. Ki runga ki te uru tapu a tāne e tū nei. Fati fati rua ana te hoi e paupoto. Tauwake ki te hoi nā kuru, he ariki fatu manawa. Tō manawa e kuru ki tuku manawa. Ka erihia, ka erihia ki waio nuku. Ka erihia, ka erihia ki waio rangi. Ka fiti a hau ki te whaiao ki te ao mārama. Tupu kirekire, tupu wanawana, e haramai taku tōki haumie, huie, taihie. The work ahead will see some turbulence and perhaps there will be white water. Yet, with powerful karakia, we will conquer adversity. Tēnā tātou katoa e whakarongo mai ana ki tēnei wāhanga o te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Ko marae raka kua hau, ko tēnei te hōtaka a Te Ahikā. Welcome back to Te Ahikā, the Kaupapa Māori program on Radio New Zealand National. And yeah, I guess welcome back to me. I'm flying solo tonight, Justine's back next week. Think Ōtaki Māori Racing Club and there's one name that crops up, Jim Winniata who until he succumbed to cancer in July had been involved actively within the club for 50 years. Justine returned to Ōtaki on what is one of the biggest horse racing day events in the year, Melbourne Cup, to catch up with Jim's children, Therese Fulford and Reg Winiata. We used to sit down at the bottom of the stairs in the old grandstand, at the old steward's room. And if he had a good day at the races, we got a bloody bottle of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> if we didn't, we had to go and sit at the railway while he went to the boozer. They were the fond days. That's us for the next 50 minutes or so, so keep it locked in. Te Aika, Radio New Zealand National. Ko te mea tuatahi. While hikoi may seem like the protest du jour, there's something to be said for just writing and publishing a letter. As Kitty Carr did in the 1995 publication Toi Wahine, The Worlds of Māori Woman, when she wrote a tongue-in-cheek letter addressed to Mrs Government. Marama Davidson, no Ngāpuhi Ngātipurau, is a human rights advocate, and after spending time with families in Manurewa, Auckland, felt compelled to do a similar thing by releasing an open letter directed at the Prime Minister of New Zealand in October. Dear John Key, you and I are privileged. Our families are doing okay. But John, I just need to feel like you know what is actually going on, is all. Tomorrow, I wish it could be you, John, instead of me, who sits with, listens, sees, feels and fully receives the plights of the families here who are doing their darndest. You and I are fortunate to not be dependent on system relationships which in effect hold hostage our kids' education, our housing, our income, our health, our employment and our involvement in the justice system. 
But there are families who are doing their best to get out of that loveless bond, John. Today I was told, I want my child to see me do the best at life. These families want out from being under the thumb of processes, policies and power abusers who have been handed and immobilised someone to blame. In the words of these people who are constantly being told they do not deserve their dignity, it's meant to make me feel like shit, and it does. I am better off for knowing these families. I am humbled by their pride and love for their kids, their neighbours, their community, their marae and their place. I am angered to hear of the ongoing knocks they face. I am inspired again to watch how they do not give up. Then I bear frustration again to hear of yet more setbacks. So I feel powerless and oh so advantaged by comparison. And just as I start to wallow selfishly in self-pity at my own powerlessness, these families school me again to keep going. John, there is no them and us for you to play politically with. I am just a more fortunate them. They are just a less fortunate me. You probably would not end up feeling like I do inside if you were to sit down and really see this, but at least you would know from a place that is real what is truly going on. And I would know, John, that you are truly callous. Yours sincerely, a mama. My name is Marama Davidson. Now this was an open letter that you wrote to John Key, Prime Minister of New Zealand. Why? A really simple objective and reason for me writing this letter is to try and change the current narrative that we have, which is quite prominent, which stereotypes our poor families into a group who people like to believe are really not trying hard enough to help themselves. So the, the simple purpose of me writing the letter was to try and change and challenge that current story. So in the letter you say, in the words of these people, who are these people? Good question. I wrote the letter immediately after a, a couple of days where I had been put in touch and in contact with families where I work here in South Auckland, in Manurewa in particular, and connected through the marae. And That's through Manurewa Marae? Manurewa Marae. And I had to sit and listen and feel the stories of these whānau who are doing their best but constantly are coming up against knocks and knocks that a lot of us who are happily living our lives just don't understand and don't get to experience. And so I, I wrote this letter from the frustration and the very powerlessness that I was referring to because I felt, what on earth can I do? I, I can't speak for these people. They have their own voice and I need to support their own voice. But I can speak for myself as a family who is doing okay and that I'm concerned for other families who are not doing okay today. And so I felt that I needed to put my voice out there somehow and I just came up with an idea of writing an open letter um, knowing full well that probably John Key himself will never read it but that other families might, other families who are either privileged and fortunate themselves 
or other families who are struggling and that I could contribute to a new narrative and a new story. Now, one of the sentences is, you and I are fortunate to not be dependent on system relationships. Now, what do you mean by system relationships? Yeah, so I have some in contact with some of these families. For example, they may be in state homes, housing New Zealand homes, and they are held hostage by... I mean, we are all held hostage in, in rental or even mortgage situations. But there are there is a different type of overpowering rule and criteria that applies to our beneficiaries. Um, and some of those examples are where we have just seen some pretty cruel mandates coming down where the beneficiary's authority to make decisions over their own lives has been pretty much taken away in a lot of areas. For example, you are told to enrol your child in health care, otherwise you won't get your benefit. You are told to do this with child care, otherwise you won't get your benefit. Those are blackmail issues that those of us who are not on a benefit don't have to worry about. We don't have to worry about whether we're being good parents, um, getting, you know, we are trusted to make good decisions around those. And similarly with um, families in housing New Zealand homes um, can be put through ongoing setbacks and knockbacks. And it can come down to one, say, tenancy manager who has a bit of an issue with someone whose anger may have got out of control that day. And all of a sudden, and I'm saying because this is what is happening, all of a sudden they can not sign off a document that was needed to get someone to the next step of independence and so forth and so forth. So I'm, I'm not in a relationship with those systems and I'm privileged and fortunate. But there are families who just keep trying to get ahead and keep getting knocked back because of those relationships that they're in. But isn't it just the state taking responsibility for its lesser fortunate citizens? It should be. It absolutely started off the, well, we could argue that that was the foundation of these very systems being set up way back, um, way back when, they, when we were, you know, supposedly an egalitarian state. So that's definitely how they started off. But now I, I do not at all believe that these systems are focused around care. I actually think they're about punitive measures. They're about blaming vulnerable people, people who are in no position to make any decisions whatsoever. So by vulnerable people, are you also meaning Māori? Especially Māori. We know that things like poverty will impact on Māori and particularly Māori women in a far worse way than they will impact on, say, Pākehā. And Pacific people are there and new migrant and refugee communities and families are also there. So Taihua, how is it that you know that? The statistics, the research has been clear for, for decades actually that it is Māori women, for example, who will be on the lowest incomes and the poorest incomes for their whānau whenever the country, well, at any time. We, we currently are still featured 
in the whānau who have who are living on the lowest incomes still centre largely around Māori women. So we definitely feature predominantly in those negative statistics. One mum in particular who was very appreciative for having a listening ear that I provided and just would say to me, she, it was the indignant feeling that she felt whenever she was dealing with the person in authority, the person who could make decisions about her life. And it was her trying to express how she did not feel she was treated with dignity or respect as a human being. And that is not the first time I've heard that. And I can recall my own experiences and I can absolutely empathise with exactly what she is saying. So it's a, it's a feeling of you as a person don't really deserve my respect, my even my compassion for your situation. And I can't for a second pretend to assume what is going on from that, you know, say, tenancy manager's perspective. But what you feel is important. What the impact of what that person is saying to a single mum is important. And the impact it has is that that person walks away feeling disrespected and unworthy of support. Okay, so we're going through an economically tough time at the moment. People are stretched everywhere throughout the country. I mean, what's a bit of hurt feelings? Yeah, really good question. And this is the narrative that is the very point of what I'm trying to contribute to. Economic well-being cannot be divorced from people. And I think that the recession that we are in at the moment is actually being used as an excuse to cut spending in the areas where actually we need to be supporting it. And I believe that the economic recession is impacting on people's well-being of the spirit. And how can we lift a nation out of poverty economically and poverty of the spirit when we're going to continually hamper people. If we don't, what we're doing is we're overlooking a resource in our country. If we cannot see the contribution that we're missing out on from our young people, we've got a disgusting youth unemployment rate at the moment. If we cannot understand the potential contribution that those groups have to make to our nation, then we really will remain poor. And so if we can help and support those groups to get into a position where they can contribute... Marama Davidson, how do you do that? OK, so I like to look at what's going on locally, actually, because I think a lot of good solutions can be found locally and can be found where people are from the community are coming up with the answers themselves. Here in Manurewa, and they were just on um, the news a couple of weeks ago, we have a group of nannies. They are our elders in the community, and they basically form relationships and get into the hearts and lives of these very, very families who are struggling. What is important about these nannies is they can get into the houses of these families where no other agencies can, there is a, a certain level of mistrust 
held by many of our Fano towards agencies. You know, um, other agencies you're talking about government support, inland revenue, children, young persons. Absolutely. So these nannies spend invest a lot of time actually building relationships and gaining the trust and respect of these very families who most of us couldn't even hope to get in. And are they then acting as advocates with the agencies? Yeah, they. I guess it's along the lines of the Fano Order project program that we've got running. And so they are forming relationships where they're trusted, acting as advocates, and I think more importantly, being a constant figure, a constant someone in the, in the life of that family who can be relied on, who can just say to that, maybe that mother or that grandfather, I'm here, I understand you, I hear you, I'm listening to you, and we'll do what we can to move you to your own rangatiratanga, your own authority. Are these families that may not necessarily be connected to those whānau structures that has a crow and a queer and, right. you know, huge and a whole lot of aunties and uncles and right, exactly. have that whānau support? Well, that actually what you're raising is, the, for me, is one of the crucial issues of where we've fallen down. And you By know, we, who do you mean, Marama? Our, our nation... Colonialism took away that structure of wider whānau engagement and support around each other. And so, particularly in urban Auckland, we have whānau who don't even know their own iwi or their own marae, maybe have never visited. And, and that's the experience I have from talking with young people as well. And so, the nannies are essentially trying to restore some of that structure that we used to have. Absolutely right. And how's it going? Amazing. Now, this is, this is again where the narrative needs to change. We have this thing, especially in government circles, called... Hold outcome. it, though. It's not so much the narrative, what you're talking about. You're talking about how it's the actual practice and the application well, that, that is, needs to that change. Is the, narrative. the narrative of telling that application and that practice needs to change. What is an outcome? At the moment, we have government outcomes that tick boxes. What is an outcome? A nanny had sat down and said to me, Marama, we engaged for three to six months with a young mum, single mum, who was in absolute poverty, and we saw her, we saw the light come in her eyes, and we saw her come out of the dark corner she was in. Now, what, you know, where in government outcomes can we tell that story? And where do we acknowledge the absolute first vital step that that outcome is towards that mother getting on to the rest of her life in a healthier way? And? So those are the, those are the things that the nannies are a part of and those are the stories that I'm hearing about what can work. And, and it's long term. It's not overnight. So you can be empowering these whānau to do that but they're still engaging in the system relationships, according to the open letter, that aren't. Yep, and they might need to for some while, and this is where the systems could do better. Yes, yes families themselves are realising 
that living in this independence is not healthy for them, is not healthy for them. To get our whānau out of those system relationships and dependencies, the systems should be better than what they're doing in the first place. And where is the support for all of us to encourage and, and help our whānau get off onto their own independence but interdependence with community rather than systems in the very way that the nannies are helping our whānau. Now at the end of the letter you've issued a bit of a challenge there saying to the Prime Minister if you were to sit down and really see this at least you would know from a place that it's real and what is truly going on. Now is that with the hope that that will then... I think I'm more trying to highlight that no, he doesn't know what is going on and I'll I'll stick to that line. I don't for a second think that he has any desire to really want to sit down with these people and understand what is going on. I think he has a story in his head and that's the one that he's going to go with. So it's really just a cheeky dig at that really um, to say that he doesn't know what is going on and I'd like to encourage other New Zealanders to realise that these people making decisions don't truly know what is going on. Now the reality is, you know, we live in a democracy and he's merely the head of this huge machinery. Personalising the issue to a single person, is that helpful for what it is that you're trying to relay? Yeah, I think... As a story, it's hugely symbolic, you know, and sure, he is one head of a, of a nation, and I am intentionally going straight to that head, and it's a symbolic issue. It's what he represents. It's what our nation represents. Um, other people may not agree with that tactic, but that's the one I've chosen, and it is a symbolic gesture of saying, well, you're in charge. You're in charge, um, and we could do better, basically. Now, this was sent out mid-October. Hi. Have there been any responses? So I've put it out on social media, um, media release, and I'd firstly like to respond to um, some of the criticisms that my letter has had, and, and a really strong criticism was, oh, marama. You know, when you use words like hostage, you're just keeping our families in victim mode. You're just playing to the self-pity and grief that they're feeling and you're not helping them at all. And I intentionally used that language in this letter. What I wanted to do was acknowledge the feelings that they have right now and the words that they use to me. And I intentionally used that language of hostage and being held down and that is a tactic I didn't use it I didn't use that language as a throwaway I actually feel and because I've been there myself that when someone at least voices that they truly understand where you are where you are at right now that is the key to empowering people and installing confidence so that criticism was interesting because I think maybe two days after I put the letter out on social media, I got one young mum, single mum, come back to me and say, Marama, when I read your letter, 
it encaptured absolutely everything that I was going through and feeling in my own life right now, and it gave me the confidence to go to work in income and be strong and upright and have a good conversation about what I need to get myself, to get my life on track to a better place. And that is absolutely one of the things that I hoped would happen from this letter. And it became that she wasn't the only one who came back to me proactively to say, this is how your letter made me feel and this is how your letter helped me. So if I can do that for one mum, I'm going to chalk it up. But hopefully it might do that for more people. So that was one criticism about the, the language that was used in the letter. Were there any others? Oh, not to me. I'm sure there are, but that's part of putting your voice out there is there will be criticisms. Hayaha, ko hokianga te awa, ko te ramaroa te maunga, ko whirinaki te awa, ko te hukutu te hapu, no ngāpuhi ahau, ko pangaru te maunga, ko ngāhuia te whare, ko ngaitupoto te hapu, so that's my father's size. Ki te taha o tōku māma, ko whetu matarau te maunga, ko waiapu te awa, ko ngāti parau te iwi, ko Marama Davidson tōku ingoa. Kia ora. I'm Maraia Rakuraku and you're listening to Te Ahikā. It was last year that Justine first met the 85-year-old Ngāti Raukawa identity, Jim Winiata. A familiar figure in the Ōtaki Māori horse racing world, Winiata is very much associated with the Ōtaki Māori Racing Club. Now, sometimes news travels warp speed through the Kumara Vine, and at times, well, not so much, which is how only recently we learned that Jim Winiata died in July. On November the 6th, Justine revisited the club. Just being Melbourne Cup Day today, ladies and gentlemen, some of the intervals are a little bit longer, so just be aware of that. We have around 45 minutes uh, here on in for a while. It's been a year since I've been to Ōtaki Māori Racing Club. I had a kōrero and a tour of the club with Jim Winiata. Jim died in July this year. He was the club's patron and had a wealth of knowledge on its history. The following was recorded in October 2011. In the 1950s, I was working on, on the farm at Tehoro, we own stock and cows and milking cows, and a couple of the old stewards, I'll name them, Hema um, Hakarai and um, Dick Rory, came down to and when I was milking in the morning, and, I, and of course he had to go across the creek and they couldn't get to me, so they're yelling out to me. And uh, <clears throat> I went across and they said, I said, what's the matter? They said, boy, sign this paper. Now that's the way they spoke to me. Boy, sign this paper. I said, what for? They said, well, become a steward. I said, no, I know nothing about racing. They said, just sign it. Okay. They said, now come to the annual general meeting. I said, yeah, okay. So I went, I went to the meeting. I'd been a member since I was t- 21. And uh, I went to the meeting, and my father was secretary. And during the meeting, one of my own cousins got up and said there were too many Winniartas on, secret- on the racing club, and that my, I should withdraw my name. 
too many winiatas so in, that it was in biased. The, club. the old people then, one, one particular person was Tenga Baker. He got up and he slated this person who got up and said, who are you to tell us people who's to select on this committee? And I was 30 then when I was, well, I would be the youngest steward gang, I would think. And I flew in and I've been in ever since. And I've had, I suppose, 50 odd years or more in here. And I'm still on the committee. <laughs> what was the role of a steward? They ran the whole race day. They were in charge of it, put it that way. All the, all the, um, from the acceptances right through to the end of the race day. So in, what's an acceptance? What acceptances are for the horses that come into the racing. They, they nominate their horses and right. then they accept them. Right. And in the old days, we used to do the barrier draws, you know, at the start. At the start of the meeting, they all got, every horse got a different barrier draw and we used to do that. But now it's all done in Wellington. Mm. So that was... So that was... Uh, yeah. Then they started to do the course up. Make a new course here. Right. And that was in the 1960s, I think it was. Somewhere in the 60s. And a lot of them, a lot of the stewards weren't... Uh, they weren't happy about it. They wanted a new stand. But the older ones prevailed in those times, the older, older students, they prevailed and made the new course. And I think going back now, they done the right, that was the right decision. Do the buildings later, put the course in, in, in perfect condition, which it is, still is, one of the best courses on the coast. And, uh, and, that's, and I was here then when they started to do the track. When it was finished, they had a very, very big meeting about putting these new stands up. The old stands, they were, and they were old. And they were old. <laughs> what were they made of at wooden, that time? Wooden, wooden stands. <clears throat> and there was a lot of dissatisfaction with some of the stewards of putting these stands up. But good, good thinking prevailed, and they put these stands up. Um, that was in the... Ooh, 60s, 68, Therese, would it be? So we have Teresa, uh, Jim's daughter, with us. Mm. Mm. This stand here in the, pub, the public stand was a bit later than that, Dad. A bit later than the 60s? Yeah, yes, yes. We didn't. Oh, lot, that's right. A lot that's later, right. Dad. That's we right. came here in 1980. That's right. <laughs> so that's right. it was a lot later than that. Going back, you know, this, I've seen the changes on this race course. Mm. Big changes. As... People know, or it's well known now, that most race courses are having a hard time financially. How so? Uh, well, I suppose there's too much gambling, like poker machines and all that. I take the revenue away from racing. And most clubs, I will say most clubs, are struggling. And that, that includes big clubs. We are one, of the, one in this area... The only ones that are above our budget all every race meeting, which is a good sign. So all you're our, still in the um, black, yeah. so to speak, financially? Financially, financially. Uh, see, we are with uh, race under the race now. Race sort of manages this, and they are a sort of consortium. There's um, four, there's Wellington, 
Trentham, are you talking Trentham, about? Trentham, Otaki, Manawatu, um, Martin, Fielding, they're all in race. And, and race are the hub of the working. They are the boss, the top people in the racing in our area. Nō reira e te koro, moe mai rā, moe mai rā. They're set now, gates over the rough and running. Colourful lady just dwelt a little bit at the start and so did Del Potro. Golden Jubilee settles third last as they make their way through the back and all in keeping in charge. Four months since Jim's death, I head back to the Otaki Māori Racing Club. Today it's Melbourne Cup Day, the sun is beaming and the crowds have gathered, and although it's one in the afternoon, of course it's wine and beers all round for the crowd. So, how is the club doing? I catch up with Jim Winiata's daughter, Teresa Fulford, and his son, Reg Winiata. As they reach the 600 metres, all in keeping the leader from Baby G on the outside. We, we met about a, about a year ago. Gosh, is it? Yeah, is it that it's long about, ago? about October 23rd, your, um, your dad, Jim, featured on Te Ahika. Goodness me. Yeah, so that was... That's gone quick. That was, yeah, really, mm. really quick. And we also have your brother. Yes, my brother, Reg, who works... For the Otaki um, Racing Club as well. So you're caretaker. Yes. And what do you do, Reg? Well, I'm just I just help trees on the track. Oh, okay. Mainly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, born obviously brought up around horses all your life. Brought up on the track most of our lives, yeah. Oh, I suppose we've been brought up on horses too, mm. eh? Because Dad had trotters. Mm. Grandparents had um, gallopers. Gallopers. So different breed altogether. Definitely. Uh, obviously, a, a big loss felt for the whanau, not only the whanau, but the whanau here yes. at Otaki Māori Racing Club. Yes, Can you tell definitely. us more about, in your words, what happened? Dad had been sick for, for a little while. Um, we just thought, and he'd been told it was just old age. But it wasn't, and um, he found out he had cancer. Um, so from the day he found out, it would have been, what, six weeks? Six weeks. Six, six weeks before weeks. he passed away. So he didn't suffer long, but I'm pleased he didn't. And he was 80 plus... 86. 86, so a, 86. a wonderful life. Obviously. He did have a wonderful life, and up until, as I say, probably the last 12 months, Reg, where he, he started to go downhill, and we just thought it was just old age. Just the last six weeks. But age. the last six weeks he got really, really sick, and, mm. but he had a pretty good life. I mean, he was cutting wood, for goodness <laughs> sakes, up until he was at least 85. <laughs> that, that winter, really, was it? Yeah. 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 So he was. Yeah. So our fire cutter's gone. Yeah. <laughs> be, a cold, be a cold winter. He used to come and he came and just this last winter he came and stacked my wood for me. Oh. What? Come in every day to stack the wood. He said it was gave him something to do, mm. and there was an awful lot of wood to stack. <laughs> So the day I met your dad, Jim Winiata, obviously we had a good hour spent here at the mm. race course. He took me all around every nook and cranny, really, of the race course. So, I mean, his love for horses was obvious, but, you know, what legacy does your dad, Jim, leave, do you think? In what respect do you In are? the respect of, is anybody taking his place as a patron? Um, yes, we, the, yes, um, a very good friend of the family and a, been a steward and also a present, Arthur McGill has become our patron, um, which I think is just wonderful. But Dad was patron for how long was it, Reg? Uh, 31 years, yeah. I think. 31 years. Yep. So it seems strange to have another name there other than Dad. <laughs> I mean, Jim, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Winiata. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think it's yeah. the first time there hasn't been a Winiata as a steward. For, I would say... Since it began? I'd say since it began. 
Wow. We haven't got a Winniata on the... Has it always been your dad's brothers or your dad's... Or related, or cousins, you know. Um, Red used to be a steward, um, but found that um, just time-wise, really, yeah. Reg, eh? Yeah. You know? So it's quite sad. It's quite sad that there's no um, no Winniatas on the committee at the moment. Yeah. Doesn't, mm. doesn't, doesn't mean there's not going to be one. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Dad... Um, and I think it saddened Dad a wee bit too that... Because he had a daughter on there as well, Anna, and a grandson, uh, my son, who was a steward, and because he had uh, Reg... Gosh, with life as busy, you know, your lives get so busy, we just haven't got time to put that extra into something like this. And it, it is hard work at times if you put your whole heart into doing the job properly, as a steward even, isn't it, Reg? Yeah. It's no use doing it half time, you know, no. half pie. You, you've either commit yourself or you don't, eh? And if you can't be bothered, then you might as well get off it. Um, so, no, it's, it is quite sad. And Stormy Lass has made the front now. Heading the chase, Plano, Kieran, colourful lady up wider. Up on the inside, Lake was all in keeping, but Stormy Lass... So, so, Reg, tell us about some of the memories of your father um, with us. What well, I, I can remember here as kids that we used to sit down at the bottom of the stairs in the old grandstand, uh, the old steward's room. And if he had a good day at the races, we got a bloody bottle of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> if we didn't, we had to go and sit at the railway while he went to the boozer. <laughs> they were the fond days, you know. Um, apart from that, it was just his, his, his knowledge of, of what happens on this track, not necessarily about racing, but just about this track. That's what we're going to miss the most, eh? Yeah. yeah. Um, same, same as yeah. Reg. Um, we used to spend hours sitting with Dan. Some of the stories he used to tell us, I'm not going to repeat any of them, I don't <laughs> of think I could. <laughs> But he was the, you know, it was history. And, you know, I remember when my husband and I first come here, it was the old um, um, steward stand that we pulled down. And Dad, I don't I can't remember how old, well, 30 years ago, so he would have been in his 50s, must have been, um, helping us pulling it down and up on top and, and, and telling us tales of what went on, you know, and... With around and and his work days because he used to work here too as a young lad, mm. even when he got married, um, he was here, and it's just something that I wish we we're just saying the other night. We wish that we had taped it. You taped, taped, yeah, his his stories, his stories yeah. you know, because um, he had some great ones. He, he was the last of the old ones. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. You no know, there's no more left. All gone. Mm. We're the next generation, and we're right. we yeah. young age. We're not old. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so how many siblings do you both have? How many? Kids? There was um, eight of us all eight together, Dad had. Yep. Um, Reg is the only boy left. Well, we had two. Dad had two sons. Our eldest brother died when he was 42. Mm. Um, we've got five sisters. Five sisters yeah. Left, hmm. So, you know, often, um, Therese and Reg, when, how you said he's the last one of that calibre left. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, I mean, we're standing right next to, we're standing at the Ōtaki Mighty Racing Club. Do you feel as though another 10, 20 years that this place is essentially in good hands? Yes, I think so. I have no doubt about it. Yeah. We've got um, to survive, don't we? I think it's in good hands, and the ones that are there are trying their best with what we've got and you know it's a hard world out there and we're competing for every dollar mm. so 
Um, I think they're trying to do the best that they can, really. Mm. Now, it's probably the biggest day, I'm assuming, in racing on the racing calendar. Today's the Melbourne Cup. So what's going on today here at Otaki Mighty Racing Club? Might be a big day for, for Australia, but it's not for us today. <laughs> <laughs> well, the TAB, I'm guessing. The... Yes, TAB. Um, it's just um, the normal everyday yeah. when we race. You know, people coming along and take their bets and that. But um, our big day, our, the Otaki Māori Racing Club's big day, is the February, uh, February day. Mm. Oh, and that's okay. our big day. And we have a big day in January too. The 4th, I think it is. Um, they're, they're our big days. So yeah. it's probably a big day in terms of punters and betting. Yes. Melbourne Cup. Yes. <clears throat> so we had a race before. What's uh, the, I heard chiro, the word chiropractor? These sponsored races. Where do you get chiropractor I'm from? Sure I'm <laughs> chiropractor? <laughs> oh, you even got your own best bet. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, it is. Dr. Harry. So he would have he will get that name race called up called after him you know oh, yeah okay. and they they probably put some yeah some money money in, money in. Mm. how does a company go about sponsoring a race so they just get in contact with get in contact with Darren normally yeah. and um, they go through and do what ne- what needs to be done yeah, mm. yeah you either get a name after you after the uh, after the company or on our big days they will you can have a tent and 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 so many say come along for 10 people and you'll get a cut in price or something like that you know what do you miss about your dad oh just miss dad just miss every race meeting it's horrible we sit over here and dad used to come see that's the hut yes well most of the time it was there for dad <laughs> and he'd sit in that corner later when he didn't want to go he didn't want to get dressed up so he'd come in his work half the time and he'd sit there and, and reg used to be his runner yeah, what would you Take his runner bets. is putting his bets on. Putting his bets oh, yeah. on. <laughs> he would become a damn nuisance. Hey? <laughs> well, I, I'd give anything for him to be back there today. So we'd say, oh, God, he comes dead. <laughs> Bless him. And he'd say, well, I better go over and sort these buggers out over in the other steward, you know, go over to the other stewards. And we, I miss him. I really miss him coming, just coming over here and and knowing there was somebody there that knows what you're, if, you, if you've got a bit of a problem like on the track or something he knows he knows exactly where you're mm. what you're saying mm. and you know there's not many people that do if I've, if I've, if I've got a problem on the track well nothing was a problem for no him, nothing it? was a problem yeah he'd know exactly where I was coming from yeah. oh that's all right girl he said you know <clears throat> blah 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 and do this that and the next thing and and that's what I miss or going to him saying hey dad what do you reckon Mm. You know, it's all that wealth of knowledge. Yeah, it's gone, mm. just gone. But never mind. Kia ora, Therese Fulford and Reg Winiata, the daughter and son of Jim Winiata, who died in July, aged 86. You also heard an excerpt of Justine's first interview that she did with Jim in October 2011. Now to listen to that interview in tonight's show, again after this broadcast, you'll find it in our program library at radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. And peep at our Facebook page too, we have photos. You're listening to the sound of te ahika with Justine Murray and Mariah Rakuraku. It's your boy Taina. Te whakatauki a nuku tāwhiti. Kau ki te tai e kau ki te tai e kau rā e tāni. 
wahi atu rā te ngaru huka-huka o Marereiao, aupiki atu te aurere kura o Tautaurangi. Tapatapa ruru ana te kakau o te hoi, e au heke ana e taratutu ana i te huka o Tangaroa, ka titiru au ki te pai o te uta, ki te pai o waho. Whiki tūrangi ana te kakau o te hoi, kumia te uru o taku waka, Ki runga ki te kiri waiwai o papatū ānuku e takoto mai nei, ki runga ki te uru tapu a tāne e tū nei. Whati whati rua ana te hoi e paupoto. Tauwake ki te hoi nā kuru, he ariki whatu manawa, tō manawa e kuru ki tuku manawa. Ka erihia, ka erihia ki waio nuku, ka erihia, ka erihia ki waio rangi, ka fiti a hau ki te whaiao ki te ao mārama. Tupu kirekire, tupu wanawana, e haramai taku tōki haumie, huie, taikie. Actually, I have a photo just from Easter this year of sitting out at the Hokianga Heads with my children, my whānau and my dad, and he is relaying to us a whakatauki about the Hokianga Harbour, which was relayed to him from our other whanaunga, Pat Hohepa. This is a Ngāpuhi whakatauki where I grew up around the, the dangerous tides and waters along the journey by my Ngāpuhi elder explorers. And uh, on their waka, they came to the big waters of the Hokianga Harbour, which were boiling up at the entrance of the harbour, and Nukutafiti, the captain of the waka, Ngātoki Mata Whaorua, used his tohonga to, to offer karakia to calm the waters so that they could get across the the big sandbar of the Hokianga Harbour. And this is a useful whakatauki for me because I think it talks about overcoming huge turbulence with persistence and courage and just going for it and working together for a vision to get across that, that sandbar. Kia ora, Marama Davidson. Next week, Justine's at Nahoe Whaua Paparangi Marae, Bulrawiri, Amanda Dobson and Rita Baker are teaching her about the relationship between planting and global positioning systems, GPS. And we'll find out who were the winners at the Māori Sports Awards. He mihi tēnei ki a koutakatoe a re tāringa mai ki tēnei hōtaka. Atu i tērā ki nga kai rā wikiwiki mihini. Hoki mai hei tērā rā tapu, mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tata katoa, Māori ora. Māori ora.